You're listening to Jar of Hearts by Jennifer Hillier. Read for you by January Lavoie. It's not Calvin. Of course it isn't. But there's no mistaking the physical similarities. The six-foot height, the same dark hair combed up and off the face, James Dean style. He's even lean and muscled like Calvin was, and the contours of his arms are visible under the thin hoodie he's wearing. The only thing missing is Calvin's swagger, the ability to own a room the minute he steps into it. Dominic doesn't have it. His smile is shy, and he seems nervous, too. But he's still a teenager. The confidence may come in time. Hi, Gio says, and the word comes out in one long, breathy syllable, making her sound like a valley girl. Hi. Hello. Thanks for inviting me over. Dominic's voice is deep, identical in tone to Calvin's, which also catches her off guard. But Calvin had a lazy way of speaking, and in contrast, his son speaks a bit faster with more precision. More like Walt. There's a police car outside. Everything okay? She's flustered, but he seems to be as well, and they exchange awkward smiles. Everything's fine, she says. Don't worry about it. He won't bother us. Please, come in. The fall day is crisp, and a gust of chilled wind follows him through the door as he steps inside. Dominic looks around, notes her socked feet, and removes his shoes, placing them neatly off to the side. He catches her staring again, but he seems okay with it. We have the same eyes, he says. He's right, they do. Dark, slightly almond-shaped. She smiles. Can I get you something? He shakes his head. I'm good. I was early, so I stopped at the 7-Eleven down the street and downed a big gulp. That was the 7-Eleven where I... She swallows, stopping in time. She was about to say where I met your dad, but he doesn't know who his father is yet. It's not right to spring details like that on him before he's ready. He waits politely for her to finish what she was going to say, and when she doesn't, he looks around again. She's wringing her hands and forces herself to stop, gesturing instead toward the living room. There are pictures on the mantel, she says. Go and look. He nods and walks into the living room. She trails behind, noting that he really does move like his father. It's interesting to see how some things are truly genetic, things like posture and gait. He's all Calvin, head to toe, with maybe a tiny sprinkle of Walt. Dominic picks up the photo of her mother and father on their wedding day, and a small smile passes his lips. Gio sees it, and something happens to her heart, a melting and swelling at exactly the same time. That's her smile, her thoughtful one. After all this time, she thinks, I've never not loved you. Your parents, he asks. If he notices the look on her face, he doesn't say anything. Yes, your grandparents, Walter and Grace Shaw. I know a little bit about them from the file, he says, setting the picture back in its place. He sits down on the chair closest to the fireplace and stretches his legs. When I turned 18, I wrote to the adoption agency, asked them for whatever information they could give me. They said I had access to everything and sent me a file. It didn't say much more than what I already knew about you, except it had yours and your parents' names in it. 
I googled, didn't find much on them, but the local library had an archive of the newspaper obituary from when your mother passed away. It had her picture. She was 33 when she died, right? You look so much like her. Geo smiles. I know. As I got older, I used to freak my father out. My voice started sounding like hers. He came home from work one day when I was visiting from college. I hadn't told him I was coming home. I was in the kitchen making dinner, and I turned around, and he was standing there white as a ghost. He thought I was her. I now know how he feels. She catches herself again, stops. Can we talk about him? Dominic says. My father, I mean. I feel like he's the elephant in the room. Gio takes a breath. How will she find the words? But she has to. Somehow she has to. Of course we can. I know who he is, he says. Gio never named Calvin on the birth certificate. She certainly didn't tell the Kents. And while she never specifically told her father about Calvin, he finally put it together during the trial as the timing fit. I did a little investigating, Dominic says. My mother told me when I was maybe 11 or 12 what your name was. Dad was long gone by then, had remarried, and his wife had given birth to their second kid. And my mom was drinking. She drank a lot. Not in the early days, but after they got divorced. I'm sorry, Gio whispers. We were living in Vancouver at the time, had been there for a couple years already. Mom got a job at one of the universities and her parents were there. She wanted to live closer to them after the divorce. It was why my dad agreed to sign over custody of me. She couldn't move me to Canada without his consent, but apparently he didn't feel too bad about it. Was kind of relieved to be done with me from what I hear. I barely saw him anyway. I'm sorry, Gio says again. The matter-of-fact way that her son was speaking about all this also reminded her of herself, and it hurt her. She knew that the more unemotional he sounded, the more painful it actually was. I'm not, he says. People change. They say you don't love adopted children any differently than biological children, but I know for a fact that's not true. I remember visiting Dad and Lindsay, his new wife, right after they had their first baby, a boy. I overheard Dad in the nursery through the baby monitor. He was trying to get Holden to go to sleep, and when he finally did, Lindsay said, is this like when Dominic was born? And Dad said, no, this is better. Gio winces. Oh, God. He should never have said that, and you should never have heard it. Not every adoptive parent feels that way. Just the ones I picked for you, apparently. Dominic shrugs. Anyway, when my mom told me your name a couple years later, I looked you up, found your mother's obituary from way back. And later, I found a bunch of other stuff. By that time, you were testifying at a murder trial. Gio closes her eyes. Yes, that's right. The article I read said that you and the accused used to be boyfriend and girlfriend when you were in high school, when you were 16. I did the math, and then I saw his picture. We look a lot alike. The understatement of the century. Yes, you do. So he is, right? Dominic says. The sweet bay strangler is my father. She wishes to God that he hadn't used the nickname. She's horrified he even knows it. And though her son already knows the answer, it's clear from the way he's looking at her that he needs her to confirm it. Because she's the only person in the world who can. 
Yes, Calvin James is your father. Dominic doesn't move, doesn't react. His eyes grow distant, and for a moment he's somewhere else, thinking about something else. The life he might have had, perhaps? Did you kill her? He asks. What? Gio blinks. Angela Wong, Dominic says. I followed the trial. You signed a plea deal. But did you kill her? A lot of people think you did and that you got off easy. Again, he says it with no trace of emotion, no judgment. There's only one way to answer, which is truthfully. After everything he's been through, the life he's led, and his goddamn genetics, the least she can do is answer his questions as honestly as she can. I didn't kill her, she said, but I helped Calvin cover it up. And then I lied. To the cops, to her parents, to my father, to our friends, to everyone. And you got away with it for a long time. I... Gio wants him to understand. I honestly expected to be caught. I thought they'd figure it out. But somehow nobody did. Year after year, nobody did until 14 years passed. Why didn't you turn yourself in? If you didn't kill her and you were only 16, why not come clean? You were practically a kid. I bet nothing would have happened to you. Gio slumps. Obviously, she expected they were going to talk about this, but she didn't expect the conversation to be so hard, for Dominic to be so purposeful in his quest for information. She desperately wants to give him an answer that makes sense to him, but she isn't sure that it's possible, since she's not sure it makes sense to her. I think I justified it by telling myself it wouldn't bring Angela back, she finally says, that she knew I loved her, and I was sorry and never meant for any of it to happen, I was very, very drunk that night, which I know doesn't excuse anything, but I was. And if I hadn't been, I might have been able to save her. But I didn't, and she died. And her family, closing her eyes, Gio takes a deep breath. They suffered because of me. They spent years wondering what happened to her, making themselves sick over it, and all that time I could have given them answers. I didn't, and then 14 years later, when the truth came out, they had new, fresh grief to deal with. Covering up her death was a mistake, Dominic says. Even if you killed her, that might have been forgivable. But lying about it for so long? Moving on with your life while her parents suffered, wondering what happened to their kid? I mean, that's a character issue. That's really the part that makes you a terrible person. He says it with no trace of humor or irony or bullshit. They are simply words, strung together in a specific way, and they cut deeper than any knife or blade could have. And there is no way to defend herself. He is absolutely right. Her son, only 18, has pegged her in one breath. Because she is a terrible person. Yes, she whispers. I know now where I get it from. Dominic cracks his knuckles, glancing over at the mantle where the family pictures are once again. Between my biological parents and my adoptive parents, there was really no hope for me, was there? Nori and Mark never really loved me, I don't think. But they did, Gio says. She knows she sounds desperate, but she wants him to have something good, something positive to hold on to. I saw their faces the day you were born. They were over the moon with joy. No, you saw her face. Dominic spat. My mother told me all about that day. She was thrilled. 
but he looked like he was going to throw up. Shit, that was true. Gio's mind flashes back to Mark Kent's face, how pale he looked, as if he couldn't believe this had actually happened, his eyes roving from side to side as if seeking an escape route. She hadn't really noticed at the time. Or had she? My mother was always honest with me, he continues. Maybe too honest, you know? Like maybe she should have filtered some things because as a kid there were certain things that I probably didn't need to know. She told me the real reason they adopted me. They had been together since college and dad was getting bored. He'd already cheated on her a bunch of times. She thought a baby would fix things, that if they had a family he wouldn't go anywhere, but she couldn't get pregnant. She had ovarian issues, he said the last two words in a voice dripping with condescension. So they started the adoption process. She didn't really expect to get a baby out of it. They were young, not much money, had bought their first house. She thought maybe the experience would bring them closer together, prove to Mark how bad she felt that she couldn't give him kids of his own. I didn't know all of that, Gio says, blinking away hot tears. It's getting worse and worse, and she hadn't even told him the worst thing of all yet. I really didn't. They looked so in love, totally committed. I guess you saw what you wanted to see. She hangs her head. Again, he was right. She had interviewed several couples before the Kents, couples who were older, had been together longer, had tried for a baby much harder. Why hadn't she picked one of them? Because she has terrible fucking judgment about everything, all the time. That's why. Anyway, she died, Dominic says, the matter-of-fact tone back in his voice. The last boyfriend, the one who was abusing me, was an alcoholic. They were coming back from dinner, he'd had too much to drink, as usual, and he crashed the car into the side of a building. Do you know that fucker is still alive? She died instantly, the airbags didn't deploy properly on her side. But he's alive, and living somewhere in Idaho. He's a paraplegic, but whatever. I'm so sorry. Gio can't seem to stop saying it. She's full out crying now, and she wipes the tears away furiously. Dominic, I'm sorry, I never wanted this for you. Then what did you want? Her son asks her. His gaze doesn't waver. His face is open, his dark eyes alight with what appears to be genuine curiosity. I'd really like to know that, Georgina. What did you want? What did you think, getting pregnant at 16 by a murderer? I didn't want- There had to have been signs, Dominic says, oblivious to her reaction. Warning signs, red flags, whatever you call it early on? Was my father, Calvin, not the other deadbeat, controlling? Was he violent? Did he ever hit you? Gio is shaking. She can't answer because she can't speak. But of course she has to answer these questions because she has to tell him about Calvin, about the monster Dominic's father truly is. He did, didn't he? Dominic says this with wonder. He hurt you, and you stayed anyway. You had sex with him anyway. That shit turn you on? It wasn't sex, it was... For the third and final time, Gio catches herself, stops. But it's too late. It was rape. Dominic finishes the sentence for her. The words hang in the air for a moment, and then he throws his head back and laughs. It's a deep, guttural sound from a place of pain, not amusement. 
Holy fuck, this shit keeps getting better and better. Dominic, all right, he says, deep breath. You were 16. That's two years younger than me now, and I remember what a basket case I was two years ago. I get it, Georgina, I really do. He pauses. Wait, that sounds weird. Should I be calling you Georgina? You can call me whatever you want, she says, stifling her sobs. Geo is fine. Geo, he says. I like that. Do you have any more pictures of my grandparents? Do I have aunts or uncles, cousins? Tell me more about the family. There are a few photo albums upstairs in my dad's room, Geo says. She stands up, grateful for the opportunity to take a couple of minutes to compose herself. But when I get back, there's still something I need to tell you. She heads up the stairs and straight for the bathroom. She locks the door, then turns the cold water faucet on full blast. She cries hard for exactly two minutes, sobbing like a child, then forces herself to stop, splashing water on her face until the spasms subside. She stares at herself in the mirror, her skin blotchy, her eyeliner smudged. She wipes it away with a tissue. Yes, it's all a disaster. But what the hell did she think would happen? She didn't think that was what. Years of her baby's childhood spent with parents who didn't truly love him or each other as it turned out. A father who abandoned him, a mother with an alcoholic boyfriend who abused him, indifferent relatives, foster care, a biological mother who goes to prison for covering up a murder, a biological father who's a serial killer. And the best part is, the cherry on the Sunday, as Walter Shaw would say, that she hasn't even had a chance yet to tell her son that his life is in grave danger. Before exiting the bathroom, she glances out the small window to check if the police car is still parked at the curb. It is, and from the awkward angle of his neck, the officer appears to be sleeping. Nice, way to protect and serve. She makes a mental note to complain to Kaiser. On her way back to the staircase, she sees a figure in her bedroom. Dominic has ventured upstairs, and he's sitting on the foot of her bed, looking through one of her old high school yearbooks. She pauses at the doorway, and at the sight of him, a wave of vertigo hits her. Sitting there casually, not a care in the world, when her father's not home. Just like Calvin. He glances up, smiles, and it's as if the horrible conversation they'd had downstairs three minutes earlier never happened. He pats the place beside him. Sit, he says, as if he's the parent and she's the child. This is cool. Your sophomore yearbook, I think? I couldn't find your junior yearbook, which I suppose makes sense because you would have been pregnant with me. She takes a seat beside him on the bed. Yes, I finished my year here at home. This was her, he says, pointing to a grainy black and white photo of Gio with Angela. It was taken after one of the Friday night football games, a candid shot of the two of them laughing, ponytails swinging, white pom-poms in hand, dressed in matching long-sleeved sweaters and tiny skirts with the bulldog's emblem. This was Angela? Yes, Gio says. She hasn't seen that picture in decades, and it hurts to see it now. She was beautiful, he says, and again his voice contains no trace of judgment. But so were you. I didn't think so back then. I can see why, he says, and she looks up at him. And not because there was anything wrong with you. 
I counted at least ten pictures of her in this yearbook. Her star burned really bright, am I right? I can imagine it would make anything else, even another star, look pale in comparison. That's sweet of you to say. She smiles. And rather poetic. How did you meet my father? Gio tells him the story of the 7-Eleven, how she was smitten from the moment she laid eyes on him. We spent a lot of time together, she says. My grades were slipping, I was staying out late. Sometimes he'd sneak in here if my dad was home early and I couldn't go out. But we never... He was a gentleman. Up until he wasn't. She nods. It's the little things that have me curious, Dominic says, closing the yearbook. I've read a lot about the two of you. The case was reported pretty thoroughly in all the major newspapers here in the Northwest. It was easy to access that stuff from the Vancouver Library, and when we moved back to Seattle, it got even easier. But there's a lot the papers don't say. What do you want to know? He shrugs. Like I said, little things. I remember reading a profile about him once, and it mentioned that he loved cinnamon hearts. Me too. He reaches into his pocket and pulls out a small pack. It's already open and half are gone. He offers her one, and once again a wave of deja vu hits her. No thanks, I can't stand them, Gio whispers, and though it wasn't intended as a joke, Dominic laughs. Little things, let's see. He always smelled good. He was good with cars. He loved live music. We went to a few concerts together. Soundgarden, Pearl Jam. So he had good taste in bands then. Dominic nods his approval and pops a candy into his mouth. He puts the pack away. So, where do you think he is now? I honestly don't know, Gio says. And just like that, it's time to tell him. This is the moment. She takes a deep breath and turns, so she's facing him directly. Dominic, obviously you know that Calvin escaped from prison five years ago, shortly after I went away. So the police have been looking for him. I know. But they're not looking for him just because of the prison escape. He's done some things. Gio takes another breath. Calvin has committed four more murders. Two women and their children. Dominic freezes. His children, Gio says, her voice cracking. His flesh and blood. He's hunting them down and he's killing them. And I'm afraid, I'm afraid he's going to come after you. That's why there's a police car outside. It's for my protection. And yours. Dominic's expression is hard to read. She can't tell if he's shocked or not. Her son has Walter's stoicism, that's for damned sure. So those bodies I've been reading about in the paper, Calvin killed them? Dominic leans back a little, the yearbook slipping off his lap and falling onto the floor. Neither of them make a move to pick it up. He's the one who cut up those women and strangled the children and then drew hearts on the kids with lipstick? It all makes total sense now. Sick fucker, wow. Yes, Gio says, her heart aching. He's only 18, for Christ's sake. It's too much for him. It's too much for anyone. At least that's what the police think. I know it's what I think. He nods, his face expressionless. Do the cops know I'm here? Your high school friend, the one who arrested you, does he know I'm here? No, she says, surprised again. 
He really has done his research if he knew that she and Kaiser were friends in high school. I wanted to tell you first, alone. But I do think I should call him now. He's going to want to put you somewhere safe. I need to go downstairs and get my phone. She moves to leave, but Dominic puts a hand on her arm. Don't call. I have to. She meets his gaze. You're not safe. We're not safe. You read about what he did to his other children. It hits her then. The thing her son just said, about the lipstick, about the hearts on the chest, that detail wasn't reported anywhere, not in any newspaper or TV broadcast. Kaiser was the one who told her about it. Nobody outside the investigation knew. Dominic's eyes are fixed on her face, and she sees it change as the realization of what he said dawns on him, too. He wasn't supposed to say anything about the lipstick. He isn't supposed to know anything about it. But he knows. And now he knows that she knows. She springs off the bed, but before she can take a step, she's yanked back down onto the mattress in one forceful swoop. She feels strands of hair rip out of her head. He's strong, stronger than maybe even Calvin was back in the day, and he's on top of her, pinning her down with his body weight as she kicks and squirms. His hands are around her throat, squeezing so hard it feels like her trachea might break in half. He licks the side of her face languorously, the tip of his tongue moving from her chin to her cheekbone, his hot, sweet breath smelling of cinnamon fire. Mother, he breathes, looking directly into her eyes. Do you see me? He keeps one hand at her throat while the other yanks her leggings down, and then his jeans, never looking away. Calvin's eyes were green. Dominic's eyes are brown, like her own. It's like she's staring into herself. She fights hard, harder than she's ever fought before, struggling with every inch of her body, understanding on some level that it has come full circle that this will end where it started, and that this was always her destiny, to be destroyed by the beast of her own creation. Every decision she's made, everything she's done, has led to this. Her son is a monster, yes, but he didn't get it all from his father. Some of it he got from her. When the new bodies turned up, cut into pieces, she should have known it wasn't Calvin. It was almost 2 a.m. by the time they got Angela's body rolled up into the plaid comforter and out the door. The street was quiet, the neighbors asleep. Calvin hoisted the body over his shoulder and made his way down the stairs of his studio to the driveway, the wood creaking beneath his feet. Gio followed behind him, wearing one of his sweatshirts over her thin cotton dress. When they got to the driveway, he handed her the keys. She opened the trunk standing aside as he stuffed the most popular girl in school inside it. It took him a while to arrange Angela's body so that the trunk would close. Gio stood away from the car, closer to the curb, taking deep breaths. A heavy fog had descended, not unusual for this time of year, and it felt both protective and suffocating even with the light of the full moon. The street lamps were on, and hazy domes of light emanated from each one, dotting the sidewalk in either direction. Her house was a 20-minute walk away, about 16 blocks. She could start walking. 
She could go home, call 911, report a death, report a murder. It was easy to picture what would happen if she did. She'd seen enough movies to understand the basic timeline of how things would go. Cop cars with flashing lights would descend on her house, and then Calvin's, and then the whole neighborhood as the police officers drove around hunting him down. Arrests would be made. Hers, Calvin's, the interrogation. Questions and more questions all night long. Her father sitting beside her, still wearing his hospital scrubs, his face a mask of horror and disappointment, unable to understand or process what happened. The newspaper headlines shouting in black capital letters what Calvin and Geo had done, their grainy pictures printed beneath them, the two of them looking like fresh-faced criminals, Angela looking impossibly gorgeous. The gossip at school would flourish, everybody knowing what she did, the whispers, the rumors, Tess DeMarco insisting that Gio was always jealous of her supposed best friend and that she's not a bit surprised that Angela was dead. The sobbing faces of Mr. and Mrs. Wong, turning angry and accusing when they ask Gio why she didn't stop him, why their little girl was gone. A trial. More newspaper headlines. Jail time, certainly. She was 16, not 14, and surely she'd go to jail. Get in. Calvin said, his breath coming out in one long white stream. He was dressed in jeans and a t-shirt, but if he was cold, he didn't look it. His color was high, his cheeks flushed from the exertion of moving a dead body from the top floor of the house to his car. The trunk of the Trans Am was closed, and it was hard to picture that inside it was the body of a girl she'd loved almost her whole life. Hurry up. Gio took one last look down the street. It was so quiet, so still. Everybody was asleep, warm in their beds, oblivious to the horror that had already taken place and unaware of the horror that was still to come. The fog, heavy and white in the soft light of the street lamps, obscured her long view. She couldn't see beyond the fifth or sixth house. She turned and looked in the other direction. Foggy there, too. Visibility greatly reduced. There was no clear path. She got into the car. Gio knew the area better than Calvin did. She grew up here, he didn't. She directed him to her street, and as he turned onto Briar Crescent, she said, cut the lights. He did, and they were cast into darkness. Briar Crescent had no street lamps. The fog surrounded them like a cocoon. I can't see anything, he said. She could smell the sweat coming off him, like ripe onions and salt. Keep driving straight. Go slow. He drove down the street until they reached the end of the cul-de-sac. Only then did he seem to realize where they were. This is your house, he said. You're going home? She glanced through the window in the direction of the house, the one she'd lived in since she was born. Nobody was home. The porch light was on, and through the fog, she could see the faint blue of the front door. Not yet, she said. They got out of the car, and Calvin popped the trunk. Every noise seemed loud in the stillness of the night. They took Angela's body out of the trunk, and Calvin once again hoisted it over his shoulder. He handed her the penlight on his keychain, but Gio didn't need it. She knew where the path was, and it was nothing formal, just worn-out grass leading deep into the woods she used to play in when she was a small child. The light of the moon was just enough.
Gio knew that at any point, a neighbor coming home late from a party could have seen them pulling something long and heavy and wrapped in a blanket out of the trunk of Calvin's car. At any point, a neighbor with a full bladder could wake up to use the bathroom, glance out the window, notice the Trans Am parked at the edge of the cul-de-sac, and feel compelled to come outside to investigate. At any point, a neighbor who couldn't sleep might put her book down to go look out the window at the thick fog that had descended, to contemplate its secrets and wonder what it was hiding. At any point, any of the people living anywhere on Briar Crescent might catch a glimpse of shapes moving through the fog at the end of the street, near the mouth of the woods, and decide to call 911 just to be on the safe side. But nobody did. Nobody saw or did a goddamned thing. They stopped when they reached a small clearing about a hundred yards deep into the woods, the length of a football field. Gio hadn't realized how much she was sweating until she swiped an errant hair out of her face, only to realize it was soaked with perspiration. She finally clicked on the penlight, the beam bright but small, using it to look around. This is the only place we can put her, she said. Everywhere else there's too many trees. He nodded his agreement. The shift was so subtle, almost neither of them noticed it had happened. Gio was in control now. Though unspoken, it was clear. Go back to my house and go into the shed in the backyard. It's not locked. Get both shovels and grab two pairs of gloves. My father isn't home, but be quiet and be quick because the shed door rattles when you open and close it. Go. She handed him the penlight and stood with the body in the dark fog, feeling the cold air bounce off her hot sweat. She felt like she was steaming. The ground felt springy beneath her feet, and the smell was earthy, moist. The air tasted much the same, and she inhaled deeply. Somewhere beyond, there was a scuffle, a rustling of leaves, but the smallness of the sound told her it was a squirrel or a chipmunk. She didn't panic. She didn't move. It was almost like she was deep inside herself, away from the chaos, all the way into that place everyone has inside them but hardly ever taps into. The place where you feel nothing. Calvin was back with the shovels a few moments later, and they put the gloves on. They started digging. At first it was easy. The soil on the surface was dense, but soft. About a foot down, though, the earth felt hard, rocky, it wasn't long before Gio's arms and hands were aching from the exertion. She paused to rest, letting Calvin continue for another few minutes until finally he had to stop too. They had started digging two holes next to each other, separated by a foot of what felt like pure stone. There seemed to be no way to connect them to create the grave they were intending to dig. I'm three feet down, but I can't seem to go any deeper or wider, he said. There's too many rocks. We have to keep digging, Gio said calmly, and though she said we, they both knew she meant you. I can't. I'd need a bulldozer. Go back to my house and go back to the shed. Get a saw. There are three hanging on the wall at the back. Bring back the big one. You'll know it when you see it. Even though Gio recognized her own voice, it felt like someone else was speaking. With the detached but direct tone of her voice, she could have been reading the news. He was back again in a few moments, saw in hand, his t-shirt sticking to his skin. He'd been back and forth and back again. 
With every passing minute, their risk of being found out grew. But again, somehow, nobody saw. He looked at her, awaiting instruction. It didn't matter in that moment that he was the one who raped and killed Angela, that he was 21 and she was only 16. She was in charge. He needed her to tell him what to do. Cut her up, Gio said. What? Calvin said, staring at her. I- I'll start digging another hole. If we can't dig one big hole, we'll have to dig a few. Cut her up. No. Fuck that, no fucking way. His face was a mask of disgust. Are you out of your fucking mind? There's no way I can do that. We've come this far, Gio said. Do you want to finish it or not? He unwrapped the body, rolling it out of the comforter, grunting with the effort. They were both startled when they saw Angela's skin. Though she hadn't been dead long, her color had paled with a grayish cast that hadn't been there before. There was a slackness to her face, a heaviness in the way her arms and legs flopped, and a dullness in her eyes, which were still open. She didn't look like she was sleeping. She didn't look unconscious. She looked dead. Calvin bent over her with the saw, his face contorted in a grimace. He looked up at Gio one last time. She nodded, then began to dig, starting a fresh hole about two feet away from the others. I can't, he said, his voice weak. She ignored him, continued to dig, ramming her shovel into the dirt. Push, scoop, toss. Push, scoop, toss. A few seconds later, he said again, I don't know where to start. She looked up, annoyed. He was soaked in his own sweat, his damp hair plastered to his forehead, his face still knotted in disgust and revulsion. It was a version of him she'd never seen before. He looked ugly, weak. In that moment, she couldn't remember why she'd fallen in love with him at all. Start in the middle, she said, resuming her digging. The sound of flesh tearing isn't like other sounds. It's not staccato like cutting into wood. It's not silent like slicing into dough. It's deeper somehow, wetter, slightly resistant, but ultimately yielding. Back and forth and back again, the saw tore her best friend open. She heard the moment when the saw hit bone. It made a scraping sound. She looked up when he gagged, just in time to see him vomit all over himself. Tears streamed down his face. Angela lay in the dirt, her leg almost detached from her hip, but not all the way. I can't, he said, choking. Gio gripped the shovel tighter. She could smell his vomit, a curdling blend of pizza and beer and gastric juices, almost identical to what hers had smelled like when she'd vomited inside his house earlier. She had never seen Calvin vulnerable before, and in that moment she had no doubt she could walk over, hit him over the head with the shovel as hard as she could, as many times as it took, until he was dead too. Maybe the fog would stick around long enough for her to dig holes for both of them. But she wasn't a killer. She didn't know who the hell she was, but she wasn't that. Come here and take the shovel, she said. They changed places. 
Geo took the saw in her hands, the wood handle feeling warm from Calvin's grasp, even through the gloves she was wearing. Her dad was an emergency room doctor, had discussed his work with her many times, had even given her details about the surgical rotation he'd done during medical school. She had some knowledge of how to cut at the joint for minimal resistance. Hadn't she done this with chicken wings for dinner the other night? She couldn't remember now. Maybe it was last week or last month. She kneeled over Angela, whose eyes were still open, brushed a hand over her best friend's face. Now they were closed. Don't look, my love. Don't look. She lifted the saw, gritted her teeth, and finished what Calvin started, the teeth of the blade ripping into her best friend, desecrating Angela's human body, desecrating Geo's soul. When she was finished, they both placed Angela's body parts in the graves wherever they would fit, packing the dirt on top of them and pressing it down firmly. They left the woods covered in blood and vomit sometime after 4 a.m. By then, the fog had lifted a little. And still, nobody saw. Calvin rinsed the shovels and the saw in the backyard with the hose, the water rinsing red into the grass and then disappearing altogether. They walked back to the front of the house. Calvin tried to speak to Gio before getting into his car, but she did not reply. He drove away. It would be days before she would see him again, before he would show up at her bedroom window in the middle of the night, duffel bag in hand to say goodbye and take what little was left of her by force. Assuming they weren't caught by then, of course. In the movies, it seemed the bad guys never got away. For now, though, it was finished. Geo did the only thing left to do. She went home. Dominic is still on top of her, the weight of him becoming unbearable. He's fumbling and he's furious because what he came here to do isn't working. And if he can't do it, he'll simply kill her. Which would be Geo's preference? Though the legal system may disagree, there are worse things than murder. She knows that now. Rape isn't about sex. It's about dominance and control. It's about taking the best parts of a person and leaving the empty shell behind. Unconsciousness threatens to overtake her. Dominic's hand is still at her throat and he's impossibly strong. She can't scream. She can barely move and little by little she feels the fight going out of her. Then a second later, he's ripped away from her. In the sudden absence of pain, there is relief and she wilts under it, gasping for breath. Her vision is hazy and all she can see is a shape looming over Dominic who's now on the floor. The shape through the haze reminds Gio of the fog the night of Angela's murder. When her vision finally clears, she sees why. Calvin. He's standing over Dominic, who's stunned, a dark red welt forming on his cheekbone where he was punched. His lip is split open, and he's lying on his side, hurt and vulnerable. In this moment, Gio can finally see a glimpse of the boy she might have known had she chosen to keep him. Are you all right, Georgina? Calvin asks her. He doesn't look anything like the last time she saw him. His hair is longer, lighter, and a full beard specked with gray covers half his face. He's dressed in old clothes. 
She nods, sitting up on the bed, and his eyes move down to her stomach and her thighs, which are bare. She's aware suddenly that she's exposed, and hot tears fill her eyes as she frantically pulls her leggings and underwear back up. Because someone has seen. Someone has borne witness to what her son just tried to do to her. Even if that someone is Calvin, it's still the worst thing for anyone to know. On the floor coming to, Dominic lets out a small laugh. Calvin looks down and kicks him in the head. Wait, Geo gasps, struggling to speak. She's still on the bed and she scooches as far back as she can until her back is resting against the headboard. Calvin, wait, just, just back away from him. She forces herself to focus. How did you get in here? There's a police officer out front. I took care of the cop, her old boyfriend says, his brow furrowing. His gaze moves from her to the young man on the floor and then back to Gio. I've been keeping an eye on you. These new murders, they're not me. I would never hurt a kid. I know. She closes her eyes briefly. The police officer assigned to guard her couldn't have been more than 30. His poor family. His poor mother. Another laugh from Dominic. Can I pull my pants up? The younger man asks, and though his words are a little thick because his lips are beginning to swell, he sounds almost pleasant. I'm feeling a little chilly down here. The gun she got from Ella Frank's brother is still where she hid it, and Gio's hand snakes under the pillow as the two men talk to each other. The small grip fits comfortably in her palm, and once it's firmly in her grasp, she clicks off the safety. The sound is muffled by the pillow. No, asshole, Calvin says, sounding equally pleasant, the arrogant drawl unchanged in almost 20 years. You seem to have no problem pulling them down, so why don't we leave them that way? Mother, Dominic says, not moving. Geo glances down to the floor to find him smiling. It's a terrible smile. Maybe you should tell dad that it's not nice to refer to his kid as an asshole. It isn't good for my self-esteem. Calvin's eyes widen and cut immediately to Geo, reflexively seeking confirmation that this can't possibly be true. Surprise, Dominic says, his voice dripping with sarcasm. It's a boy. How? Calvin asks, locking eyes with her. How is that possible? So the man's erect penis enters the woman's vagina. Dominic begins in a monotone voice, parodying what one might hear in a middle school sex education lecture. Shut up, Calvin says, but he doesn't kick him again. His eyes are still fixed on Geo. How? He asks more urgently. You know how, she says, her voice small. Her gaze shifts to the heart tattoo on Calvin's inner wrist. She hasn't seen it before, but it has to have been there a while, because the red ink is a bit faded. She can see the initials inside it. G.S. He immortalized her on his goddamned arm. Why didn't you tell me? His voice is soft. I would have wanted to know. You were gone, she answers, and I was glad. I never wanted to see you again. Calvin stares at her a second longer, then looks down at the young man on the floor, 
who is still lying on his side but watching the exchange with bright eyes. Stand up. Pull your pants up and don't make any sudden moves or I'll rip your throat out. Dominic does as he's told, slowly bringing himself to a standing position. Side by side, there's no question that he's Calvin's son. They're the same height with the same features. But where Calvin has confidence, his son has bravado, and they're not the same thing at all. Jesus, Dominic says with a mocking roll of his eyes. Now I know where I get my violent tendencies from. Shut up, Calvin says again. Geo pulls out the gun. The two men look over, their faces making identical expressions of surprise. Dominic takes a step toward her, but Calvin grabs his arm. He nods to Geo, who gets up off the bed and stands, facing them. Calvin pulls Dominic back toward the wall, putting about five feet of distance between the two of them and Geo. It might as well be five inches. The bedroom feels tiny and stiflingly hot. She focuses her gaze on her son. How do you want this to end, Dominic? Oh, so now I have a choice, he says with another terrible smile. You're letting me decide what happens to me? That's rich. You should have aborted me, by the way. Why didn't you? Because I loved you, she says, and it's true. He doesn't believe her, and she doesn't blame him. He doesn't know what love looks like. He doesn't know what love feels like. Love, healthy love, the kind that doesn't hurt or bruise or take away someone's sense of self-worth, is like anything else that's important in life. It has to be taught. I hate you, Dominic says, and his voice chokes. But not from sadness, from fury. It colors his words, punctuating each syllable. I fucking hate you so much. I'm sorry, she says. Calvin watches them both, saying nothing. They're at a standstill. She doesn't know what to do. She doesn't know if she can shoot either of them, but neither can she let them get away, especially her son. Hurt people will always hurt people, and the wounds gouged into Dominic over the years can never heal. They're too deep. Well, this shit is hilarious. After 18 years, I finally have both my parents, Dominic says, and he's laughing. It's hysterical laughter, the laughter of someone who's laughing even though nothing is funny, an expression of pent-up toxic emotion. You assholes, look what you've done. He laughs even harder, his whole body shaking. In the distance, there are sirens. They grow louder, their wails filling up the normally quiet neighborhood. The police are getting closer. Dominic throws his head back, almost convulsing. Look what you've done. It's not quite a howl, not quite a roar. It's something in between, animalistic and predatory and insane, and it fills Gio with a sadness that goes way beyond grief and guilt. How did you know, she says, directing her question to Calvin. How did you know to come here? I came back when I read about the first pair of murders, Calvin says. I knew then. Buried in the woods, their bodies cut up the same way. Of course I came back. It felt like someone was trying to call me home. Their eyes meet. 
It's the one secret they still share after all these years. He never told the cops the whole story of that fateful night, about the saw, the vomit, how Geo took over and finished it. None of it ever came out at trial. And Calvin could have revealed it, could have told the whole truth, not only about himself, but about her. But he never did. He never said a word. Instead, here he is, a silly heart tattoo on his wrist with her initials inside it, even though they will never, ever end up together. It was classic Calvin, just like the jar of hearts full of candy he'd given her that only he ended up eating. She stares at the two of them, her first love and her last love. Was this what love was? Was this what it looked like, demented and malformed and diseased and monstrous? I understand it now, Calvin says, looking at Dominic. Why you killed the children, too. My children. You did it to hurt me. No, you fucking idiot. Dominic lets out a mirthless laugh. I did it to hurt her. Why did your other kids get to have good mothers? Why weren't they fucked with? Why me? I want to finish what I started, father. Want to help? I'll let you go first. He laughs again, and the sound is as humorless as the first. Oh, wait, you already did. Georgina, go, Calvin says, not taking his eyes off his son. Leave right now. I won't let him hurt you. Go out the window. I can't leave it like this, she says. She's shaking now, the weight of 19 years of secrets and lies threatening to crush her from the inside out. He's our son. Yes, he is. And people like him, like me, shouldn't exist. He's right, of course. And if she leaves, Geo has no doubt they'll kill each other. The looks on their faces are identical. They're beyond reach, beyond hope. And for the first time, she makes the decision she never made all those years ago. I love you, she says, the words choking in her throat. And I'm sorry. I am so fucking sorry. She aims the gun and fires. Then aims it again and fires once more. Her fingers go numb. The gun falls to the floor, landing soundlessly on the bedroom carpet. She collapses beside it, sobbing so hard she feels her insides might break, crying even harder than she did the morning after she gave birth. She crawls toward Dominic, reaching for him, and cradles his head in her lap. Her chest heaving, she strokes his sweaty mat of hair, moving the loose strands away from his face. Caresses his cheeks, his chin, the bridge of his nose, the arch of his brow. Puts her nose to his forehead and breathes him in. His eyes are open. Through the blur of her tears, she can see her son looking up at her. They're her eyes. Her mother's eyes. Brown, soft, and dull now, from the absence of life behind them. Her son. Her beautiful boy. She opens her mouth and wails. The shriek is guttural, unlike any sound she's ever produced before, and at first she doesn't realize it's coming from her. Beside them on the floor, Calvin twitches. His leg moves, then his arm. 
He's down, but he's not dead, despite the hole the bullet punched in his chest. Continuing to stroke her son's hair with one hand, Gio reaches for the gun again and shoots Calvin in the head. Maybe this is how it's supposed to end after all. Angela Wong's grave sits in an open area at Rose Hill Cemetery, on the side that gets the most light. Her parents chose a rose quartz headstone for her, and the flecks of silver and gold sparkle brilliantly when the sun is out, as it is right now. Gio stands in front of it, her cardigan stuffed into her oversized purse, enjoying the soft spring breeze on her bare arms. She's brought roses this time, pink. But instead of placing the entire bouquet at the base of the tombstone like she has the last half dozen times she's visited, she tears off the petals one by one, scattering them all around. The pink petals look pretty against the green grass, and she thinks Angela would have liked it. Leaning forward, she touches the headstone, tracing the engraved letters on the quartz that spell out her best friend's name, date of birth, and date of death. Angela Wong had lived 16 years, 2 months, and 24 days. A fraction of time in what should have been a long, full life. I love you, Gio says out loud. There's a groundskeeper about 40 feet away, trimming the shrubs that border this section of the cemetery. He can't hear her, and even if he could, he's seen and heard this kind of thing before. I brought you a Slurpee. Grape, of course, but I ended up drinking it on the way over here. You should see me right now. I've gained 20 pounds. I wish you were here to tell me my thighs are getting fat. She smiles. For the first time since before Angela died, she can think of her best friend and feel more happiness than grief, though both emotions still exist, sitting side by side like old friends. The difference is they no longer interfere with one another. I miss you, Ange. She stands for a moment longer. The groundskeeper looks over, gives her a little wave. They've become familiar with each other, though they don't know each other's names and have never spoken. She waves back and starts heading for the paved path that winds around the hill to the other side of the cemetery. Her mother's grave is in the shade, underneath a giant oak tree. Gio only recently learned that her parents had family plots, purchased decades ago by Walt's parents when they first moved into the area. There'll be space for Gio one day if she wants it, but hopefully that's a decision she doesn't have to think about anytime soon. It's chilly under the tree, and she digs her sweater out of her bag and slips it on. Her mother's headstone is simpler and smaller than Angela's, made of white marble. Grace Maria Gallardo Shaw had lived 33 years, 7 months, and 5 days. It's hard for Gio to comprehend that she's older now than her mother was when she died. Not by much, but it feels strange. She remembers her mother as being the wisest, most beautiful person in the world. With some effort, she sits in between her mom's grave and the one nearest it, which is newer. 
The grass has grown in completely, and the headstone Geo ordered months ago has finally been finished. It's similar in shape to her mother's, but the marble is a deep gray. It causes her pain to look at it because unlike the others, this loss is fresh. Her phone rings and she pulls it out of her purse to check who it is. She smiles and answers the call. Hey, she says. Hey, Kaiser says. The background noise tells her he's driving and she's on speakerphone. How are you feeling? Not too bad. I'm at Rose Hill visiting. The headstone is done finally. I came to see how it looks. There's a slight pause, and she knows Kaiser is trying to think of the right words. All he comes up with is, and? It's beautiful. I'm glad we did it. Another pause. She can hear a horn honking in the background. I'm okay, she finally offers, even though he hasn't asked. I know you are. She can hear Kaiser smile over the phone. I'm on my way home. I'll pick up some fried chicken. You said you had a craving, and now every time you do, I do. Your dad's still coming over? If so, I'll get that beer he likes. Gio manages a chuckle. Way to kiss ass. They disconnect, and she sits for a bit in the shade, looking at the headstone that now sits near her mother's. Dominic Kent had lived 18 years, six months, and two days, until he was killed by his biological mother at his biological grandfather's house. Mark Kent had been notified by the police of his son's death, and they invited him to come and claim the body once the autopsy was completed. Mark had declined, and didn't object when Gio said she wanted him. It had taken some maneuvering to get Dominic's body moved from the morgue to the cemetery, but she was able to make it happen, bringing him here to Rose Hill to be laid to rest in the family plot. Yes, it had raised a lot of eyebrows, particularly among those in the neighborhood. But the ugly graffiti messages on her father's garage had finally stopped. They never did find out who was behind them, and people seemed to be moving on. In any case, Gio didn't expect anyone to understand. The best way she could explain it to herself is that she wanted to give her son the peace and safety in death that she should have given him in life. She never did ask Kaiser what the police had done with Calvin's body. Walter hadn't protested. Instead, her father had offered to pay for the burial, and later, the headstone. Because he loves his daughter. And had different choices been made, he might have loved his grandson, too. In any case, he'll get a second chance. Gio rubs her belly, feeling the baby move. Before she leaves, she reaches into her purse and pulls out the package of cinnamon hearts she bought at the 7-Eleven on the way over. She rests them on Dominic's headstone. The groundskeeper will probably eat them, but that's okay. The thought makes her smile. Geo turns and heads for home, stepping out of the shade and into the sun. That was Jar of Hearts by Jennifer Hillier and read by January Lavoie. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. If you liked what you heard, buy Jennifer Hillier's next thriller, Things We Do in the Dark, wherever books or audiobooks are sold on July 19th. <laughs>